Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, and that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And what a treat we have today. His stats read like something out of a video game. 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star, 8-time Silver Slugger Award, 5-time batting champ, and get who he's in company with for the four straight batting championships, Ty Cobb, Roger Hornsby, Rod Carew, and Tony Gwynn. And he stole a horse in New York one time in front of millions of people and got away with it. He, he is our friend, the legendary, the best hitter of my lifetime, Mr. Wade Boggs. Wade, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How we doing? It's great to be here. Hey, Wade, man. It's great to have you on, man. Uh, yeah, you and I met years and years ago, man. I was telling John some of the stories. Uh, we met in Atlanta one time. I think both, both of us missed our flight, our connection. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, we, Jerry, we go way back. We go back to the Armory days when uh, you and Jack used to wrestle against the Funk Brothers. And uh, those are some of the greatest times that I've ever had growing up uh, here in Tampa. Uh, Gordon Soley and, 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 oh, my God, Pac Song and Dusty Rhodes and, and Bobby Shane. And, and I could just go on and on with, with the amount of talent that came through Tampa Bay. And, and you and Jack or were the premier guys here in Tampa. That's, that's for darn sure. You're, you're, you're the, you, you were wrestling as far as Tampa was concerned. Well, the way Bob's are wrestling for Tampa. (laughs) (laughs) Wade, thanks for those compliments. Yeah, man. uh, You you know, it's quite a, quite an experience. I know you, you came from military family and traveled around a lot. Was was Tampa really your first taste of of professional wrestling when, when you first became a fan? Yeah, we moved, uh, actually we moved down to Tampa in 69 and, and started going to the armory probably in 71. And uh, every Tuesday night, it was it was something to behold. I mean, it was uh, we'd we'd work our way down for for the ringside seats and all of that. And and especially when uh, uh, Terry and Dory Funk would come walking out of the thing and they'd spit on you and throw stuff at you. And and the older ladies behind us would throw stuff at them. So we'd just get cokes and and all kinds of stuff thrown at us and hot dogs. And I'd go home with mustard and Coke on me. And, and my parents kind of, they didn't, they didn't know what they, they said, where in the heck you been in a food fight? And I said, well, no, I went, I went, I went to wrestling. And uh, (laughs) we called it wrestling back then, but but it was, I tell you what, it made my Tuesday nights. It really did. Was you around when Dusty Rhodes turned American dream on us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Those, those were oh when he walked out and started prancing and walking around and and Bobby Shane would come out with his girls and and uh, yeah it was uh, it was something to behold when Dusty started the American Dream. Uh, sure, well you mentioned a, a name there that you know out of the past and you know uh, he left us much too soon through the the, the air crash with Buddy Cope there. 
but what a fantastic talent and what you know on the inside as as a mind bobby shane was probably one of the best in-ring performers there was and way backstage he was one of the brightest guys that there was in the business too of putting matches together and, and 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 creating angles and all that stuff yeah, that was that was something because I grew up on Davis Island and he crashed right off of Peter O'Night there in Davis Island and and uh, Buddy Colt I think was with him and and there were a couple other guys on board. Gary Hart, Gary Hart, yeah. Gary Hart was on board, but Bobby was the only one that passed away during uh, uh, that crash into the bay, and uh, he he was sort of the 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 pre, if if you would, with the uh, with the. Uh, with the girls and, and all the, all the flair that he had. And, and like, like when Ric Flair adopted all the woo and the, and the, and the, and the bolos and, and whatever he would wear with the, with the feathers and all of that. And the, and the, and the strutting and the Rolex wearing and the Gucci wearing stuff like that. But Bobby Shane, he was definitely ahead of his time. He was. And we found out something through this show, right, John, about about Bobby Shane and the crown that he had. You know, the crown that Jerry Lawler ended up with was Bobby Shane's crown. I'll be darned. And by wow. Jerry got it. Uh, Bobby had loaned it to him because Jerry was doing a, a, a photo shoot and they were calling him the king and he didn't have a crown. And Bobby was headed off to uh, where Australia, wasn't it, John? Australia, yeah. And so uh, Bobby said, here, I'll loan you my crown. When I come back, I'm going to Florida, so I'll need it. And so uh, he went down to Australia, and he didn't have time to go back to Memphis. He comes straight to Florida, and he was killed in the, in the airplane crash. Right. And so yeah. that's how Jerry got that crown. It's a prized possession here, Jeff. But what a great talent, you know, and, and, and we're all privileged to see somebody like that. But the genius of Eddie Graham, I mean, and, and Gordon Soli, you mentioned the oh, Gordon, yeah. Gordon Soli. Wow. Yeah, I had uh, I, I had the pleasure of, of uh, going to lunch with, with Jack and, and Gordon. And uh, just before Gordon had passed away, I, th I think it was probably two or three months before Gordon had passed away and, and got together with, uh, uh, like I said, Jack and, and – uh, a uh, few other guys at uh, Malio's here on Kennedy and just had, I, I think, I think the lunch lasted probably four hours of all the stories and, and, and the crimson mass that Gordon Soley uh, coined. And, and I, I mean, I can still close my eyes and, and, and hear him talking nowadays. And, and he was just uh, an, an absolute treat. He actually, Gordon was, was the Vince Scully of wrestling. Yeah. And Gordon was, was so wonderful. And Brian Blair was there and, and Steve Kern. And, and it was one of those luncheons that uh, you wish somebody had videotaped it because it was that good. And just listening to stories and, and especially with my childhood growing up here in Tampa and, and then getting involved with, with uh, the WWE and, and, with uh, the guys down the road and, and especially with John and, and when we'd go hunting in Alabama and, and we'd have probably five or six wrestlers there. And, and I tell you when, when, when you have celebrities and, and kids are involved with various activities that we had in Alabama, John will be a, a test of this boy. When the wrestlers come out, those kids absolutely go bonkers. 
And it was, it was so neat. Cause we had, we had the Steiner brothers there. We had John and we had big boss man and we had Kurt Henning and, and we just had an absolute hoot and just practical joke after practical joke. That was, <laughs> that was one of the things that, uh, because Jerry, you know, as well as John, that, that your industry, they cornered the market on practical jokes and we, well, us baseball players showed them a few of our own. So, uh, but uh, yeah, it was one practical joke after another. And, and uh, Jeff Foxworthy sort of got caught up in the whole tornado of uh, all of these practical jokes. And that was a, that was a, a hoot story. Dogs, I understand now. Too. That was a hoot story. I'm telling you. <laughs> Jeff Foxworthy walked into the bar at one point. And he, he was such a good sport, by the way. And he was on fire back in the, back when then. He was probably the hottest comedian in the country at the time. And he walked in, he put his wallet on the bar, and he said, I can't whip anybody in here. But if somebody will beat up Wade Boggs and Kurt Heating, you can have whatever's in my wallet. <laughs> it was so funny. What happened, though? I mean, you know, the guy, John's told me the story several times, and I laugh my ass off every time. So. What exactly that? Well, it, it was one of those. It was one of those. We had to we had to go up by Selma to uh, stay at uh, uh, Jimmy Hinton's uh, the Sedgefields, and and they had cabins and and various things. So uh, there was a three bedroom cabin there for me and Perfect and and Jeff Foxworthy, and Perfect had just come off of some knee surgery, so he was icing his knee and everything, and after the hunt climbing down out of the tree stand. So we're sitting in the living room and Kurt goes over to the refrigerator and gets a, a baggie and starts filling it up with ice. And, and I said, I said, uh, what in the hell are you doing? And he says, Oh, I'm going to ice my knee. I said, Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I said, Oh, does her knee hurt? <laughs> and so I'm just, I'm going like this. So I'm saying, Hey, we can, we can get Foxworthy. Why don't we just pretend that a battle royal starts and we'll just act like you're mad at me. I'm mad at you. And let's see how far it goes. Well, it, it went a little <laughs> too far. We started breaking plates over each other and, and, and he chest slapped me and Kurt had the best chest slap in the, on the planet. Yeah. And he'd knock me into next week and I'd chest slam him. And Foxworthy was just absolutely going bonkers. <laughs> he said, would you guys please stop? He, he says, I don't have a lot of money, but I'll give you anything just to stop. <laughs> and we just kept going. And he went back to his room and locked the door. Well, Kurt threw me through his door. So I go flying <laughs> into his room, land on the bed. Kurt picks up a Scrabble game. And hits me overhead with the Scrabble game. Now I look over at Foxworthy, and he's got an X, a Q, a R, and an I stuck on his face. <laughs> so I'm sitting there laughing so dadgum hard <laughs> that we both look at Foxworthy and go, "We got you." <laughs> so the next night was the banquet, and Foxworthy just he says, "You might be a redneck if you go." hunting with bogs and perfect and a battle Royal breaks out. <laughs> and he was telling all of these redneck jokes and every one of them had something to do with me and perfect. And it was just one of those moments that just escalated and escalated and, and Foxworthy was caught in this whole tornado of a, of a storm. And, and, uh, 
so we went back uh, the next year and Foxworthy was there again. So, well, he was staying at the lodge this time. We didn't have to go to Sedgefields or anything like that. He was staying at the lodge. So about three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, perfect pictures lock on his door and fire extinguishers in. Remember that, John? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was, absolutely. That was, and Foxworthy comes out and he is just, he looks like the, uh, the, the marshmallow man. He's all white. He's got, he's got the fire extinguisher all over him. His room is, you can't see in his room because of the fire extinguisher went off. And Foxworthy comes out and says, if I can find a gun, I'm going to shoot Boggs and him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody goes, hide your guns, hide your guns, Foxworthy's on the on the loose. And and people started waking up and 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 they'd open their door and look at Foxworthy. And he's just he's just this white ghost walking down up and down the the uh the hallways. But we just we just tore into him and it was just so much fun. And everybody got a big hoot out of it. Hey Jerry, you gotta understand we had there was uh Aaron Tippin was there, John Anderson. Uh, Chipper Jones was there one year. All the wrestlers, I mean, the, and one of the Mandrell sisters, the stories in the bar were legendary. I mean, it uh, was it was a really good time. And at one of, at one point, Foxworthy had a buck uh, deer. A deer ended up in his bed, didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. We took uh, we took the deer heads <laughs> off. The oh well. yeah, oh yeah. We took the deer heads <laughs> off the <laughs> and, and filled up his room with all the deer heads. So. And then, and then we locked the door from the outside. And then in the morning, he's trying to open the door. Well, the guy that owned the lodge comes out and he goes, where in the heck's all the deer heads? I said, I don't know. I think Foxworthy's trying to steal them. So he goes and opens up Foxworthy's door, and there's probably 10 or 12 deer heads in his room. And <laughs> Hey, Jerry, and one Foxworthy, of the best parts was, you know, Foxworthy was the hottest guy in the country at the time. He was, I mean, oh, he was sure. on fire. And so they gave him like the prime, you know, the prime locations and stuff, you know, every time he had shot a deer and he couldn't find it. It was right at night. There was a little bit of rain, they had dogs. They're trying to, but they never, I don't think they ever found it. So when he comes back, all those dead bucks are in his room. And one of them had a note on it said, if you're looking for a dead buck, that's what it looks like. <laughs> that's <from Kirk. laughs> well, that when Fox where they walked into the bar and put his wallet on the bar and said, I'll give whatever's in my wallet for somebody to beat up Wade Boggs and Kurt Hitting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had so much fun. We had so much fun. This year, it's time to get off the couch and get back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life. And when you feel confident, you are at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? 
So if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we got a special order deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code JBLGB. That's JBLGB at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. The BlueChew.com promo code JBLGB to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. You know, you know, you, we, Kurt, Kurt was the master ripper in our business. Did you guys have one on, on, the, on the Sox or the Yankees? Was there was a guy that stood out like, like perfect was ribbon and baseball? Or was you the guy? Well, I was pretty good at it. I was pretty good at it. I mean, I can, well, everybody I, that makes I can, comparisons there compared to I, 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 can, I can do that. Uh, what's that, Jerry? I said in, in our business, everybody's compared to Kurt. So in baseball, everybody the rivers are all compared to Wade, right? <laughs> well, I, I could, I could, I could. No one my own. In, so I hold my own, own there, brother, man. <laughs> I tell you what, there were there were some there were some some characters as far as practical jokes go and and see the the thing about it in in our business was a a practical joke will get somebody upset at you because you know if you start touching people's equipment and you know you you're touching people's bats and gloves and and stuff like this and and uh so it was uh one of ours uh, we were in uh in uh, yankee camp and in uh in 90 i believe it was 90 seven we were in yankee camp and and uh spring training and david cone and and jimmy key they were practical jokers too as well so um i got a shipment of my nike shoes but i was on the road at a game and came back and found out that my nike shoes uh, had arrived and i was all happy and opened up my nike shoes and someone had uh um relieve themselves <laughs> with number two in my shoes <laughs> so i'm sitting there and and i know who it is <laughs> and so it was it was either going to be uh jimmy key or or david cone and and i was going to get it, it didn't matter because i was going to get them all back we'll get them all. so i would have got the right guy i was going <laughs> to get them all back well they you know they they sort of uh, let me know who it was, and I got a pass key to their hotel room and left one in the middle of their bed. So, <laughs> so when you get into your bed and there's something in there, it's like, okay, here we go. That sounds like a wrestler story, man. Oh yeah, I'm telling you, you, you don't mess with people's shoes. That's that's basically where I was going. Wait, don't you're, mess you're, with my shoes. And you're known as one of the most superstitious ball players of all time, too. Correct. Well, the the thing about it is, is I'm the only guy in the Baseball Hall of Fame that has superstitious on his plaque. So <laughs> I guess I won that that notoriety right there. That that. Uh, I, I probably, when I was playing, had uh, in the upwards of close to 80, 85 superstitions that I went through during the course of a day. And everyone knows the, the chicken one, naturally. That's uh, where you have to have chicken before every game. But, but uh, yeah, it was, it was OCD on steroids. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the, the, the big things. 
And you arrived at the same time and all that? Was that part of your... Well, route? yeah, it was It was running at the same time, step over the line, going out, step on the line, coming in. I draw the Kai sign, I throw the three rocks over the line, and it was just like uh, get dressed at the same time, take your ground balls at the same time, and everything's sort of time-oriented. That's, that's sort of getting back to the military upbringing that, you know, you eat at five o'clock, and if you're late for dinner, it's in the garbage. And that's how you're brought up in the military is that things are, you know, you get up at, at seven o'clock at 0700 and, and get ready for school. And, and you catch the bus at a certain time and you're home at a certain time and dinner's at a certain time. So I just, it just sort of made the day flow a lot easier if everything was sort of time oriented and just sort of just puts the blinders on a little bit and, and just everything rather than, I, I never figured out how guys get on a bus at 5.15, get to the yard, and get dressed in 10 minutes, and then go out and get ready for batting practice. I've, I've never figured that out. I mean, I get to the yard probably 12.30, 1 o'clock for a night game. And just my whole day just gradually uh, evolves in, into the culmination of starting the game. So – um, that was that was more or less the, the time oriented part of, of all the superstitions. Well, damn uh, superstitions. Three thousand head, three thousand ten heads later. <laughs> well, yeah, it it, it worked. <laughs> yeah, I was just reading. Uh, I, I'm sure you know this. You're you're 33rd on the all time batting average list, but you're number one of people that are, are alive. So you're the greatest hitter alive right now. Yeah, I'm the greatest on earth that's alive. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so that's right. Yeah, I have, the, I have the highest batting average of any Hall of Famer that's alive. So hopefully I can continue to hold that down for about another 30, 35 years. I don't know, something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's a great honor. You know, a, bit, a, lot, of, a lot of great hitters have, have passed away. Tony Gwynn, uh, unfortunately, uh, eight or ten years back uh, had passed away. But um, he was he was one. I was two, and then when Tony passed, I I became one. But uh, hopefully, it's not a a red herring to where uh, you just keep passing that torch around. It's like the oldest person in the world; they always die. You know, yeah, that's it. You read the headline. <laughs> yeah, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Year old lady in Sri Lanka dies. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, that, but you know that's that it, that brings up a, a a great segue for the for the other Kurt Henning story that I do have, and and. Uh, I've always referred to Kurt as my guardian angel and uh, we were deer hunting in Iowa and the, the, the guy that ran the farm said, uh, you want to split up or you guys want to uh, walk together? And I said, well, I haven't seen Kurt in, you know, six months, a year or what have you. I said, we'll just walk together. And, 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 you know, if we flush something up, then, you know, we'll take a chance of shooting it and, we don't have to split up and then uh, rendezvous back at the truck or anything like that. So we, we probably walked three, four miles and we walked along this fence row and, and came up to this barbed wire and, and we needed to cross the barbed wire. And, and I said, Hey, hold my gun. I'll go first. So I stepped on the barbed wire, grabbed the tree on the other side of the barbed wire. Well, the tree broke and didn't know it was rotten. And I got tangled up in the barbed wire. And I, I had it completely wrapped up over my legs and I had fallen and, and separated my shoulder and I'm laying on the ground upside down and I feel something really warm 
running down my leg towards my waist because I'm upside down. And I said, I said, Kurt, I think I'm bleeding. He gets on this barbed wire and Kurt, the strongest man on the planet, could barely get me undone from that barbed wire. And finally, I, I fell off of the barbed wire and onto the ground and I lifted up my uh, pant leg and I had lit my uh, shin open from uh, my kneecap uh, down almost to my ankle. And I was bleeding like a stuck pig. Well, Kurt Henning puts me on his shoulders and carries me three miles back to the truck, drives me to the uh, hospital and I get all bandaged up and everything like this. And the doctor had said, if that gentleman sitting over there wasn't with you, you would have bled to death on that fence post. And I mean, I just get choked up, you know, talking about this all the time. And, and I've always called Kurt, my guardian angel. And, you know, with, with him uh, passing here in, in Tampa, it's sort of like, it's sort of like I let him down and I wasn't his guardian angel at the time, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll never, never forget that. As long as I live, he threw me on his shoulders and, and we just boogity boogity back to the truck. And, and I don't, I don't, till this day, don't even know if I could have walked that three miles bleeding as bad as I did. And, and, and he was booking it too. He was booking it. And how long and did it God, take you to get God you bless him. How long did it take you to get to those three miles? We got, we got back to the truck in, in probably about, um, about 35 minutes. Wow. Yeah. He was, he was, uh, he was hauling tail. He really was. And, 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 and carrying was, a big guy on his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he strapped me up there like, like they, 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 the army carry. And he says, hold on, we're going. And man, it was, it was something else. It really was. How did you guys begin this great friendship that you had with Kurt? I mean, we, uh, we met in 1985 at a dinner in Rochester, New York for Ken Kaiser. And they had various play, uh, baseball players. And, and Kurt Henning was a wrestler at the time in the AWA, I believe. And I think he was the, uh, and, and Ken Kaiser was actually a wrestler as well. Former major league umpire. He was a wrestler as well. He wrestled in Northeast. And, and so he knew a lot of, of we had him as a referee a few times. Sir. Okay. Yeah. We, uh, and he would bring in wrestling guys as well. And, and, and he says, he goes, you got to watch out for this one guy. And I said, uh, who is that? And he says, he says, man, this is this Kurt Henning guy. Uh, he goes by Mr. Perfect. He's, he's like, you gotta watch out for this guy. And I said, Oh, okay. So we, we sit there and start chatting and we're sitting next to each other on the dais and, and, and we just, wow, we just hit it off. And he'd, ne he'd never, uh, he'd never fished before. And I brought him down to the keys and he called it sea fishing. And he wound up, he wound up catching a, a, a 10 foot, 600 pound bull shark. And he had it mounted. And I think Lenice just, Absolutely hated me for the rest of, rest of my, my life because he's got this big bull bull shark in his house, and uh, yeah, yeah ugly. It's, it's ugly. And uh, he he'd never been sea fishing before, and and yeah, we started we started doing a lot of fish 
fishing together and, and, and naturally a lot of hunting. And he'd never really hunted outside of Minnesota. And we would, uh, we would go to British Columbia and we'd go um, to Iowa and we'd go everywhere fishing. And he just, he just enjoyed the outdoors. He really did. And then how did that progress later? Because later you did the, the perfect skit with him and you guys were just remained friends that whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we bump into each other at, at various events and, and things like this, or I, I, I'd give him a holler on the phone and said, Hey, I'm going down to the keys for four days. You want to go? He says, yeah, I got to figure out how I can get out of this. Maybe I can hurt my knee in uh, the wrestling match on Wednesday. <laughs> and then I can, uh, I can get That's a little knee was injured so much, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm the reason that he, that he took four days off quite a bit. And, uh, but, uh, I had, yeah, I had, I had a charity golf tournament one time in Texas and for like make a wish or something and I look up the morning and it's Kurt hitting and big boss, man, they weren't yeah. invited. Nothing. They just showed up on the first tee and they go, can we play? I go, yeah. Well, why are you here? And they said, well, we were in Puerto Rico. We didn't, we didn't want to stay. And so they just left. They played. And after the 18th hole, they didn't go to dinner or anything. They just left. I didn't see them again for like three weeks. <laughs> it was, it was yeah, so surreal he, just to he, see him show up playing. He, he says, "I got to do this little montage thing, and and uh, I want you to be part of it." Um, you know, I shoot baskets and I do everything, and and I want to uh, hit home runs. And I said, "Okay, yeah, I got to see this." Well, his second swing, it's a home run at uh, the University of South Florida field, and I, the camera guy looks at me, and I went. That's perfect. <laughs> and, and it was the second swing. He says, cut, wrap, put it in a can. And I went, oh, my God, it took him two swings at a home run. And I said, you're just the biggest show off in the world, aren't you? He says, well, no, I'm just perfect. And I went, yes, you are. I said, yes, you are. He was a great athlete. I mean, he, oh, he was. Yeah. He and, was. And funny. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? a new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help. And you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. Uh, Wade, uh, you know Brad Johnson, of course, the quarterback for the Bucks. Have you seen his new vignettes, his new gimmick? No, no. He's a big, bad Brad. And he does, he does all the Kurt Henning stuff. He'll shoot basket and he's, you know, swishing. Oh, really? Turn the big bad Brad. You know, he's doing it for a charity, of course. Uh, I'll be darned. Wow. He, he's doing everything that Kurt had. And and I got a, friend, a mutual friend with Brad, and I said, ask him if he got that from Kurt. And, of course, I know he knows Kurt, but my friend went up to him, and he don't know a lot about Brad. He asked Brad, did you get that big, bad Brad from Kurt Henning? No, it's mine. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I think the other one was, was Pat. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's doing everything that Kurt did, everything. Uh, I'll be darned. Wow. You know what's amazing about Kurt was all the ribs he pulled, and he ribbed, 20, you know, 24 hours a day he ribbed. Everybody loved him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was like he Owen. Was, it just everybody just loved Kurt, no matter what he did. Everybody loved him. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the the list of people that wanted to get back at Kurt was probably <laughs> astronomical of of how far it was. Uh, it was it was so funny. Another Kurt Henning story down in the Keys. We we uh, we get a three bedroom 
uh, condo down in the Keys and and take eight or ten buddies down there and fish, get a couple boats and all of this. And and one night we're coming back from the Duval crawl and and uh, Kurt always he had a, an assortment of masks. Those are the big things that he he always traveled with. He traveled with masks and he put on this old man mask, came in <laughs> and was on his knees. And he walked up to one of my buddies, TJ Ferlita, and said, and, and started mumbling. And my buddy jumps out of the sofa. The, he was laying on the sofa, jumps up from the sofa and says, oh, my God, there's an old midget in the condo. And he's <laughs> screaming like crazy at Perfect. And Perfect just played it as good as you could ever imagine. I mean, he's scared and guys would open the door and all of a sudden said, Oh my God, I'm calling the front desk. And he just played it off. Like he'd run around on his knees, like, like a dwarf would actually run around. And I don't know how, but that mass, it was, it was, it was so perfect that uh, it it looked like an old dwarf that was in the condo and he had broke in and now he's, he's terrorizing everybody. I tell yeah, you, uh, Kurt Henning's story in the ring. He's wrestling uh, Hillbilly Jim, and when he comes out, you know, Kurt loved being a heel. And when he comes out, we had one fan that was Kurt Henning's fan. He's going, Kurt Henning, you're the best, Hillbilly. You suck, you suck, Hillbilly. Get him, Kurt. Kurt spits out his gum, hits the fan, and it hits him in the face. And when he does, the guy looks at Kurt and goes, "You suck, Kurt. Kill him, Hillbilly." And he turns, <laughs> the, he turns to Hillbilly and he goes, "Perfect." <laughs> oh, that is, that's vintage, Kurt. That's vintage Kurt. And the good thing about Kurt was no matter what you did, as far as the rest of the boys, we had immunity because Kurt got blamed for everything. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You could, you could pull something off and it was like <laughs> Henning did it. Yeah. He didn't have to be in the town, but Henning did it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and anyway, you, you put, you put Kurt and Bobby Henning and, uh, uh, Bobby the brain and, and oh, the, the same room. Oh my goodness. That's, that's just a recipe for something's going to happen. I've always, Bobby thought Heenan, he... you know, I miss, I miss Bobby as, as much as anybody also. God, he was, he was so wonderful. There you go. Yeah. I've always thought when they talk about the greatest color commentaries, they're really arguing about who's second. Because right. Bobby, Bobby's first. Without a doubt. I mean, it did. It, it, and, the, the way he could tell jokes was – and it was like he'd save them up for a year and you wouldn't see him in, in 10 or 11 months and he, he'd start reeling them all off. And it's like, okay, I just saved all of these up for bogs. So it was like, okay, I got these. And, and oh, yeah, he could, he, he could hold court. He really could. You know, Wade, when, I've always thought, you know, one of the reasons the wrestlers back in the day – you know, it had so many ribs and so much stuff because we didn't have internet. We didn't have cell phones. You guys didn't either. And you guys right. had just, just like we did, you guys had the dog days of August where you're in sure. one city and you're going the next, the next, the next three hours, four hours out in the sun every day. We're in Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, one after another. It had to be very much the same, right? You guys just, that's, at some that's, point get, get that was our and, entertainment. That was our entertainment. We didn't have Nintendo and all of that. And, and guys nowadays, they go on the road and they got all these giant suitcases full of Nintendo and they have Nintendo games all night. And then they sleep all day and go to the, go to the, go to the yard. And, you know, back in the, you know, we didn't carry our 
Xbox around or anything like that. We, we just play practical jokes on everybody and, and, and see where they, see where they wound up. And, and that was, that was, you know, when, when you get baseball players and wrestlers together in the same venue, like, like at uh, Buckmasters or something like that, I'm telling you, it can get, it can get kind of, uh, uh, the, the, the guy that, that, that uh, takes the brunt of it is a, a Jeff Foxworthy. And uh, because we know how to handle ourselves and, and yeah, I, I remember when, uh, when uh, Steiner picked me up, was going to throw me in the stinking pond and boy did i beg him not to throw me in the pond that was and i think it was about 38 degrees that day and we were doing all the obstacle course stuff and we'd have various events we'd have obstacle course knife throwing hatchet throwing and and all of these different things and 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 steiner's sitting there and he picks me up and i went oh my god he's gonna throw me in the stinking pond and thank God he didn't, because it was, you know, like I said, it was 38 degrees, and and all the wrestlers are out there, and 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 really the baseball players wanted to stay away from them, because <laughs> it was like, okay, they're gonna throw you, they're gonna throw you in the pond, and then we, then we got baseball players against the, the wrestlers, and that that wouldn't have lasted very long, believe me, <laughs> that wouldn't have lasted very long, because the wrestlers would have just decimated all the baseball players, so. Well, especially we had Rick Steiner. We didn't, we didn't need much else. That was yeah. not all we needed. Yeah. I mean, when Rick, yeah. When Rick picked me up, it was like, Oh my God, here we go. And I think all the other guys, uh, Chipper and I, the only guy that could probably hold our own would have been Bo Jackson, but, yes. um, Bo, Bo was there a couple of times. And yeah, uh, he's, he's a strong son of a gun too i'm telling you he, he could pick up rick steiner and, and oh, yeah yeah and big boss man and and hold his own with those guys but uh, yeah it was it was uh and then you got what was funny is is the guys that worked around the the uh, lodge and various things like that we'd be in the kitchen or something telling stories and you'd look and there'd be 10 guys in the hallway listening to all the stories and I mean, it was a story after story after story and and all these guys that worked around there were sitting there i mean they they got their fill of all the stories from all all the 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 great wrestlers that we had and the baseball players that's for sure yeah, yeah like it was earlier, somebody had been wise enough to have a camera oh, jerry it was insane you had these legendary baseball players these hall of famers you had these legendary wrestlers these hall of famers some legendary country singers who are on yep. tour also had yeah. all kinds of stories. Yeah, it was Aaron crazy. Tipp Aaron Tippin. Yeah, Aaron Tippin and and John Anderson. John Anderson and Eddie Reisner and and oh my gosh. Um I mean you could just go on and on and on. And 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 then when you, you put in the, the all the guys at the height of their wrestling, they were there. And then you got batting champs and MVPs and baseball and all of this. And it was, and on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday were the, were the two events. And, and I mean, we'd have close to 10, 12,000 people just show up and watch all the events and, you know, signing autographs and doing all of that good stuff. But uh, yeah, it was a great event. It really was. Jackie Bushman put on a, he put on a good show for the fans. 
So, Wade, I, I, I got to ask you, because uh, one thing you're legendary about, uh, like Andre the Giant, you may be the greatest uh, Major League Baseball beer drinker of all time, <laughs> which is something. So the, the cross-country stories about you, are they true? Well, I, I, uh, I did Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and uh, they, they sort of uh, tried to recreate going from Boston to L.A., and uh yeah all the all the stories are true yeah they're they're all true and and uh so the the record was 73 and but uh but i don't know if uh i don't know if i three beers and a cross-country flight yeah i don't i don't know if 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 i could have uh kept up with andre though i i heard andre was 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 the king i'll i'll take number two to andre that's for sure I, I experienced with Andre, and I, I, I've experienced with you too. And I tell you, both of you are pretty damn salty. <laughs> yeah. Well, well thanks, both, Jerry. Both, both of you have caused me to miss flights at Atlanta. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I've got that on the resume now, so that's <laughs> that's that's good. Wait, I saw an interview we did one time with uh, Tony Gwynn. And the way you guys do two 3,000 hitters, two great hitters, both uh, you know, four times straight, like we mentioned, uh, batting champions. Uh, not only a few people in the history of baseball have done that. But the way you talk about hitting was completely different. You're very analytical. Tony was just, I get up and hit what I see. Is that fair? I think it is to a certain degree. I, I, I tried to keep it as simple as I could. And, and, and mechanic, mechanical uh, – I think nowadays guys get too consumed with watching video and not really trusting their body, trusting the God-given talent that, that they have. And, and the over analytics that, that they have nowadays with the, with, with the launch angle and exit velocity and various things like this is in order to keep it simple, it, it's, it's sea ball, hip ball. And that was one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I would look for spin and having 2012 eyesight, uh, Ted Williams had 2010, but uh, having 2012 eyesight, I, I could pick up spin on the baseball. I could see a dot for a slider, the tumble for the fork ball, uh, change of elevation for a curveball, and then make an adjustment in less than four hundredths of a second and figure out what, how I wanted to put a swing on this, on this baseball. Uh, for 11 years, I had the, the, the great luxury of having uh, the wall in Fenway Park and and come to find out after 18 years in, in the big leagues uh, that I had the highest average at Fenway Park, 368, and Ted Williams had 363. So wow. when you sit there and look at those numbers, and, and in my opinion, the greatest hitter that ever lived is Ted Williams, uh, without a doubt. But just having that safety net uh, uh, comfort blanket or whatever you wanted to call the wall over there just made me that much better. And everyone said, Oh, he'll never hit 300 if he leaves Boston and all of that. Well, I, I proved them wrong when I went to New York and the highest I hit in New York was 342. But, but um, it was um, no, I, I, I don't, I don't try to, to, and everyone goes, well, do you guess? And I said, well, if a guy has four pitches and you guess, you have a 75% chance of being wrong on 
whether or not, okay, I'm guessing slider and he throws a fastball. I'm guessing fork ball. He's going to throw a curve ball. I'm guessing change up and he throws a fastball right by you. Um, and coaching high school, ba- coaching high school baseball here in Tampa for 21 years. That was the approach that I would just tell these young kids. I said, just see the ball, put a good swing on it and everything else will take care of itself. And, and just use your God given ability to take over once you see the baseball and you look at major league baseball right now, guys swing at balls in the dirt and you can, you can tell that they've never ever picked up the baseball out of the hand. I mean, they just start swinging and all of a sudden the ball bounces and, and it almost looks like they're playing cricket that, that the ball bounces in front of home plate and then they do right. the, the old one hop and hit the ball off the yeah. ground. But, um, yeah, it, uh, I think a, a lot of times nowadays, guys just overanalyze too much about about the swing. Um, find a swing that works for you, and that that's you know some of the the difficulty of, of of a hitting instructor is when you have fourteen guys um, with different swings, you have to sort of cultivate and grow each one of those. And 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 believe me, hitting is not like is, is, is not like, uh, you have, you, you clone hitters and, and say, this is the only way to do it. Uh, hitters are like fingerprints. They're all different and everybody has their own start mechanism and their own and, and verbiage too. I mean, a lot of guys, you sit there and start talking about hitting and start talking about impact zone and carrying your uh, length through the baseball and all this. And they look at you like you're talk, talking Chinese arithmetic. And it's, you just try to keep it basic for these guys and, and know their strengths. That was the thing when I was a hitting instructor for Tampa Bay, you got to know the guy's strengths. And when you find out their strengths and their weaknesses, then you sort of overcompensate and work on their, their weakness to, to sort of get that up. Not, not as, as good as their strengths, but just where that they can get by. I doubt they'd ever tried against you, but what what would you think about the shift? Oh, I'd hit five hundred. I did. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I, we'd go into New York, and and Wayne Tolleson, a shortstop for the Yankees, uh, we'd go into New York, and we'd uh, I'd walk up to the plate, and he'd be over in the hole at shortstop. Well, I hit the ball up the middle, and then he next at bat, he'd go up the middle, and I hit the ball in the hole at shortstop, and I saw him at a golf tournament few years later and he, he says one question i've always wanted to ask you do you watch me and i said absolutely why do you think i got so many hits against new york you go up the middle i hit it in the hole you go over in the hole i hit it up the middle and it, it just it it blows my mind that you put all these guys on one side of the field and if they let the ball travel a little bit they can hit the ball the other way i, I don't know if they're too stubborn or or basically what they're they're gimmick is but uh, th- th- those are scenarios that that I mean it, it, it's pretty simple if, if you got a hole over on the other side of the field that you could drive the Queen Mary through <laughs> oh my goodness really it, it's it's just, hard, right? <laughs> uh, it's and and the, really probably the hardest thing to, to to do is is play straight up because all the holes are covered then you can't make a mistake and hit through the, the other side of the infield. And we were in Minnesota one time. This is probably one of my best shift stories is that Ray Miller, the manager for the twins, 
said, uh, came up to the batting cage before the game and said, uh, Wade, we finally figured you out. And I went, oh, okay. All right. I'm looking forward to this. And actually, Kenny Kaiser was the home plate umpire that day. And so I walk up and uh, Chuck Knobloch and Greg Gagne are standing behind second base. And shortstop and second base are open. And I went, what is going on here? So I took a pitch. Well, when I took a pitch, one of them would run to their position. So I went, oh, this is going to be fun. I went five for five that day. Whoever didn't move, I just hit the ball in the hole where whoever didn't move. So I went five for five and I'm standing on first base. Ray Miller walks out in front of the dugout and tips his cap to me. And I went, boy, that was probably the easiest five for five that I could ever accomplish because whoever didn't move, the hole was open. So I see the shortstop take off. I pull the ball. I see the second baseman take off. I just hit the ball the other way. So it was, yeah, it was five for five that day. And it was one of those, but yeah, I, I sit there and I, I look at these shifts and, and it just blows me away when, when they have the overhead view of where all these guys stand. And I understand that guys, they, they sit there and, and they, they're, they're pretty well mapped out when they draw up where a guy hits the ball. If, if, if I'm one of those guys that leads to hitting the ball in a certain area, I'm going to, have some extra batting practice early in the day and work on hitting the ball the other way just to show people that I can. And then that'll take everything back to square one and, and make them put guys on the other side of the field. But, Oh, they just, they put everybody on one side of the field and the guy will hit a rocket into short right field and a guy standing right there and throw him out of first base. And, you know, now they want to ban the shift, but if you're, if you're dumb enough to hit it into the shift, then uh, and you deserve what you get, I guess. Psst. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control. But it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. You were a great defensive ball player, too, not only offensive. You're, you're over 3,000 hits. How Would you play the shift now, or would you resist it a little bit, or what What would be your philosophy nowadays what, if, if you had to do that? Well, the thing about it is, is, is if, if I was – would I be – would they move me from third to short put the shortstop on the other side of the field or use me from third and put me as a Rover with a left-handed hitter in right field. I, I, I really wouldn't, I would, I don't know where I would wind up in that scenario, probably the Rover in short right field or, or what have you, but um, they're, they're trying to, what they're trying to do in banning it is keep all the infielders on the infield dirt. And rather than guys in in uh, short right field, and you got a right fielder, and then you got your center fielder and right center, and then you got your left fielder over in center field, so that's that's probably the scenario that it would it would be. I've been requested by Kevin Sullivan, you know, as you know, a lifelong Red Sox fan, 
And I don't know if he would rib me on this question. So if I, when I ask this question, it's coming from Kevin, and it could be one of those wrestlers rib that he wanted me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> to ask you a question about your hitting at Fenway. He said they put. Uh, I don't. He gave me the the even date when they put the 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 announcer's position down right above home plate. Did that did that happen, and did, did that change your hitting or anything? Or do you even know what I'm talking about? No, actually what it, it was is when they built, I, I called it the dog track. I don't know if you've ever been to Derby Lane or anything. You know that big monstrosity of a building to where everybody sits behind and watches the dogs go around? Yeah. Well, when they when they redid the confirmation of, or the, uh, con, the, the formation of, of um, the, it was... I think it was the Pier One Club or or the the one of these one of these clubs to where it was a private club. They built it up. Well, it would form downdrafts coming over it. Well, I would hit a fly ball to left field, and when they finished building all of this, it would knock the ball down. Well, I had mentioned this in the paper, and the 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 formation of of how high it was formed downdrafts coming over that, and I had and they said, well, we'll 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 get people in here that know what they're doing. And, and, and then I said, and they brought in a guy actually, I think three or four years ago from MIT and they did a wind study and it was true. So I took all this ribbon in the paper when I was there <laughs> that Boggs doesn't know what he's talking about. And I said, I said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I said, well, I said, yeah, when you hit a fly ball to left field, it, it knocks it down a little bit and it, it took a little bit more to carry it, but um, they've done a, a remarkable job of, of, of remodeling Fenway park. I, I was so happy that they didn't tear it down. Like all the other great cathedrals that have been around major league baseball, they've, they've remodeled it and you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even know she's uh, she's 110 years old. It was uh, one of those, one of those great parks that they, they kept intact. Is that you your have... favorite park? I would assume it is. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, it was when you walk out and that wall just j jumps on you. And I mean, my, my first time walking into Fenway park and coming out of the, the home dugout on, on first base and seeing how close the wall was, I said, man, I just need to get a little bit stronger and I, I can start wearing that wall out a little bit. Did you have a great relationship with, uh, or what kind of relationship did you have with Ted Williams? Uh, spectacular. And I, till this day, I, I've kicked myself and I think about it daily that I never asked him to go bone fishing. <laughs> and this is one of the things that, that really has, has driven me nuts that I had so many opportunities to just, Say, hey, Ted, let's go bone fishing down the Keys in the offseason. And I'm sure he would have jumped on it. But, but uh, once Ted passed and, and Kirk Gowdy and, and myself laid a reef down in Nyla Murata for Ted, um, I said, I'm not going to make that mistake again. One of Ted's fishing buddies was Kirk Gowdy. And I said, I'm going to ask Kirk to go fishing with me. And he accepted. I didn't say a word the whole day on the boat. He talked about Ted the whole time about, uh, and it was just an absolute wonderful trip. 
And I'm so glad I did because if I would have asked Ted, it would have been the same way. I wouldn't have been able to get a word in edgewise with Ted. And probably if, if you don't fly fish and cast the way that Ted thinks you should, he's going <laughs> to let you know it. He's going to let you know it because he was, he's uh, not only in the baseball hall of fame, but Ted's in the fishing hall of fame and uh, just an absolute uh, expert angler. I assume Ted's your favorite ball player of all time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I got, I got a lot of Ted stuff in the house and, and when he passed away, he, he uh, uh, in his will, I've got his shotgun and, and fly rod and reel and case and all of that. And, That's awesome. And uh, so I've got uh, some neat personal items from, from Ted. And it was just, uh, it was a, it was a treat to be around him. He lived right down in Lake Wells area, right? Or... It's uh, Citrus Hills. On the on the West Coast, yeah, for for quite a while, and and the the Ted Williams Hitters Museum is just it was a spectacle, and and they dissolved it once they moved it to Tropicana Field, but um, yeah, that was it was kind of a uh, one of those things that if if you're really into baseball, that was one of those museums that had everything under the planet. It really did. Ty, Ty Cobb famously, you know, had, who had the, the split grip, which funny because he had the great batting average. Nobody, nobody's tried it really since. They had, they said something to him one day about not hitting home runs, and he hit a couple home runs that day. And his point was, I could if I wanted to. If you wanted to, could you have hit more than you hit? Were, were you were you so concentrated on I'm going to hit the ball here, I'm going to hit the ball there, and you were so good at placing the ball. I mean, you were one of the greatest greatest hitter of my lifetime. But could if you wanted to, would you have hit more home runs? It it wasn't a point of wanting to. It was a point of of when I when I getting back to see ball hit ball and recognizing spin. I wouldn't hit the ball in front of uh, of the plate. I would let it get deep onto the plate, and I would work from right center to left center in the biggest part of the field. Um, those close to six hundred doubles that I hit, uh, half of those were probably in Fenway Park. And had I played my whole career in Wrigley, the balls high off the wall in Fenway Park or home runs at Wrigley. But um, it wasn't in, in 87, I hit 24. And it wasn't that, wow, I, I, I think I'm going to try to do this all the time. I went to spring training in 88, and I think I was hitting a buck 25, uh, getting close to the end of spring training, trying to duplicate that same swing that I had the year before. And it just wouldn't work. I was popping the ball up and and really couldn't hit a line drive. And it took almost three weeks, the beginning of 88, uh, into the season to get back that line drive stroke. And, and I mean, when you, when you talk about th that, that gets to the launch angle. And guys that hit home runs hit the ball in the, in the, in the front part of the impact zone, which is creating launch angle and the bats on its uh, way up. I wanted to keep my hands above the baseball and create that swing to where I would drive the ball into the, into the alleys but uh, really didn't hit a lot of high fly balls. And, and coincidentally, in 87 was the year that I hit a lot of high fly balls. And hence the 24 home runs that I hit in, in 87. But, uh, oh, sure, I, I would have loved to have been a home run hitter. Uh, with 365 average and 30 homers, I, mean, I, I could have probably gotten paid a little bit more. But uh, <laughs> other than that, no, it, it wasn't a conscious ever because I, oh, I, 
yeah, I, I'll take a home run as much as I take a line drive into the into the gap or something. No, it wasn't. It wasn't You're a just conscious big on effort. Taking what was given you? Right. It wasn't a conscious effort to sit there and say I'm not going to hit a home runs. I'm just going to I'm just going to hit for average because I in in '87 I, I I hit 368 with 24 home runs. So it right. wasn't that I sacrificed my average to hit home runs. Uh, in actuality, the average went up. Wait, we're we're a huge baseball fan. My question is, you know, you all hit slumps. Well, hit a slump. What did you just do? Go back to the basic, or did you change anything when you when you hit a slump and trying to come out of it? That's well, I asked the greatest hitter on. I asked the greatest hitter on the planet, "How do you get out of a slump?" And I don't. I don't think Ted had ever been in one. But uh, we were we were sitting around spring training one time and. It was just me and him and the bench out on out on the field in Winter Haven, and I said, uh, I said, Ted, if you were to ever get in a slump, how would you get out of? It? He says, Oxy, try to knock the hat off of the pitcher. And I went, Wow, that's that's as basic as you could ever imagine. And I was on about a two for 27, two for 26. And we we're in Minnesota. And it came to me, my first at bat, try to knock the pitcher's hat off. And I'll be darned if I didn't hit the pitcher in the head, knocked his hat <laughs> off and went on about another 20 for 30 run. And, and it just, it sealed the deal right there. <laughs> Did you tell Ted that you'd done it? Oh, absolutely. I said, it worked. <laughs> it worked. That's it worked. Awesome. Wait, I know you got to go pick up your grandkids. We we can talk to you all day. We're huge baseball fans. We're huge. I appreciate Wade, it. Huge Wade Boggs fans. We've been friends a long time and good friends. We got to get together. We got to get together, brother. It's not to get together. Since the baseball season started. You know, we've had Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. As soon as baseball started, you know, Wade Boggs popped in my mind. I said, John, we got to get Wade on here. It just ties in with their baseball season starting you know the hall of fame was just held and everything and man we appreciate your time so much and thank you thank you thank you jerry love you guys love you guys it's been great love you too brother all right see you down the road see you